Is there anything you would have done differently? We've reported a true story. Our colleague Brian Williams is back in Kuwait City tonight after a close call on the skies over Iraq. Controversial Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and questions about Kavanaugh's drinking in the past. Sean Hannity, come on up, Sean Hannity. Today, Andrew Cuomo is having a moment. Hi, I'm Chris Dyerwald. And I'm Eliana Johnson. Welcome to Ink Stained Wretches, where we break down what's going wrong and what's going right with the American news media. In every episode, we're going to tell you what's on our front page, a quick recap of the stories that caught our attention this week. Then we're going to do a deep dive into our obsessions, the things we couldn't stop thinking about. And finally, Chris will make me say something nice before we sign off. Up first on the front page. These are the stories we thought were most important this week and a little bit of last week since we didn't record on the holiday. So Ed Henry is suing Fox News and CNN, but, you know, focus on Fox He's News. He's also suing CNN. He's also suing uh, CNN. Contemporaneous. Contemporaneous. The suit was filed the next day. So what by did, way of background. Is, I didn't know about this. I, when you mentioned before that he had sued CNN, I thought that was like after he had worked at CNN. What's he no, suing no, CNN for? No, it's the for? same. Well, let me get into the oh, Fox okay, thing. Sorry. So, so Ed Henry, uh, former Fox News correspondent, was dismissed in December of 2019 with prejudice, uh, Fox <laughs> issued a statement saying that he had engaged in serious sexual misconduct and they were parting ways with him. And uh, this was CNN after picked up the this story. This allegations course. were made from a former producer. Ed Henry is suing Fox News and CEO Suzanne Scott for defamation. And I read the complaint. I cannot weigh in on the legal merits. I cannot weigh in on the veracity of the allegations that Ed Henry refutes. But... There are some real uh, shots at CEO Suzanne Scott in this complaint. The one that jumped out at me and I just wanted to grant points for style was the following. Uh, The complaint states that Ms. Scott essentially serves as a false front, a female CEO who, by virtue of her gender alone, uses that attribute to make it appear as if Fox News is serious about sexual harassment when it is not, dot, dot, dot. Plaintiff was fired in order to divert attention from Ms. Scott's long history of covering up actual misconduct. And my quick thought on this was it amazes me for that for the level of interest in Fox News among the mainstream, the ability to miss a story. So like Brian Stelter writes an 800 page book and basically, you know, misses the Roger Ailes story. And I've been struck uh, by the headlines that have been generated since Suzanne Scott took over about the new culture at Fox News, and they finally added an HR department, et cetera. And it does seem to me to miss the story of her role in the misdeeds of the Ailes era. Well, I'm I'm going to I'm going to flee from this uh, matter as uh, quickly as I possibly can. But I will say that as you watch what's going on with this whole debacle around Tucker Carlson and the NSA spying on me and the different iterations. Well, tell us about the debacle for. Uh, for our listeners who aren't regular watchers of the 8 p.m. hour on Fox. Well, the, the story definitely broke through. And so it goes like this. Tucker said he was being spied on by the NSA and that a whistleblower at the NSA had had told him that it was so and had, had given him proof. And then the story sort of evolved and changed to a reporter that Tucker said that he told Maria Bartiromo that a reporter had been given his emails by the NSA, which is not a whistleblower. would be something different. Could be both. 
both things are, po- I mean, all, not mutually exclusive. All, all things are possible, <laughs> uh, but uh, th- it, but it is a different thing. And then the and then the last iteration is that Jonathan Swan at Axios gets a story, obviously, pretty obviously from Fox uh, or Tucker. That is, Tucker was trying to book uh, Vladimir Putin, and that's why the NSA caught his email. And I, I, you just committed the journalistic sin of speculating on a reporter's sources. I'm going to point out. Well, the it, it seems it's it seems well. Here's here's how it looks from the outside. I don't have any special inside knowledge. This is like here. the least interesting part of the story, by the way. This, geez, Louise, <laughs> the the from the outside looking in, what it seems like is an effort to try to clean up something here. Now, well, I do think the Swan report lent an air of plausibility to right. the allegations, for sure. Um, but that wasn't say, the original allegation. If the NSA is spying on Tucker because uh, I would like them spying on journalists who are like, you know, talking to the Russians. Well, a problem with that. There, and, and we should remember here, there's two very different things. And this is sort of what Trump did with the my phones are being tapped uh, stuff. If, if, there's, if there's stuff that is out there on you that you think is going to come out, and I think Tucker is going to be subject probably soon to some uh, retributive leaking because of after the Ben Smith, the media critic at the New York Times wrote a piece talking about how Tucker's a big source for journalists of the mainstream variety, which, of course, is going to upset people like Sean Hannity, is going to upset people like Mark Levin and others. So here's what it looks like from the outside. It looks like Tucker said something that was pretty crazy sounding, and now we're climbing to a point of plausibility out of that. And I don't think it's, on the one hand, who cares? Not me. On the other hand, I do think that this talks about the ongoing managerial problem at a network that doesn't seem to have a good way to keep its talent dealt with. And I just remember... I get that this is nostalgia. Right. This is like the big difference between the Ailes era. Right. For all his flaws, Roger, very right. hands-on manager. It is too bad for America that Roger Ailes was basically a sex criminal because there was, he and Bill Shine together had, the former senior vice president, had a capacity for dealing with, these. the, the famous rich people are hard to manage. This is just true. Whether it's Tucker Carlson or Sean Hannity going up on stage with Donald Trump or whatever else, you need skills. This is the hardest kind of management because they, especially in the Twitter age, they can do whatever they want. And they have a lot of power. They have a ton of power and they have allies and people like Donald Trump and others who can apply pressure, da-da-da-da-da. So the real management challenge, it seems like at Fox, and I think the Henry lawsuit speaks to this, is what, how, do you, how, do you, how do you manage celebrity, how do you manage rich celebrities? And I don't think it, uh, I, I think they, they, they need some shoring up there. My two cents on the Tucker brouhaha was when I first heard the allegations, like they sound so outlandish that I thought like, I'm not, I can't dismiss the plausibility of them at all uh, because I do think this is high stakes for him now. And the questions I'm left with is what exactly are the contents of the emails that he alleges were leaked? Um, Presumably he knows what they are. And then which news organization in DC has them? Because I don't believe they've been published. Well, if what he says is true, is true, then a serious crime with national security implications has been committed, that the NSA is leaking things to try to harm a journalist. If, if that is so, and, and this is, again, the conundrum for Fox, you have Maria Bartiromo, who is, is coming to his defense and coming to his aid. But what do you say uh, when, when your most successful, highest visibility 
anchor or not anchor host is making an allegation of serious criminal misconduct by the national security apparatus in the United States. You got to like follow the story. And, and I do feel bad for, you know, there's this thing that they do and they did it in the lawsuits over the voting stuff. There's this thing that they do where they're like, no one would take seriously the things that our hosts say. And I think that's a, a cop out. I don't think that's right. I think you either ought to either either Tucker Carlson is somebody good to have on TV and you stand behind him and you think that he's a good person to have on TV or he's not. And I, I think too indulgent in one way, but in another way, this is this is not supporting your on air talent. Up next, I wanted to talk about NPR's trigger warning uh, <laughs> that they issued or appended to their January or July 4th, excuse me, reading of the Declaration of Independence. The backstory being that NPR has its correspondents read the declaration every July 4th. Very patriotic thing to do. But this year, uh, it's like the Jews say, you know, this year is different. This night is different. Okay, so this year is different. Uh, And they write, after last summer's protests and our national reckoning on race, the words in the document land differently. And this is about the declaration. It famously declares, quote, that all men are created equal, even though women, enslaved people and indigenous Americans were not held as equal at the time. And I just thought this was laughable, like, our nas- we had a national reckoning on race. We've had several national reckonings on race. Uh, and did they just only realize that the declaration over, you know, like two years ago, they didn't realize that women and slaves uh, were not held as equal. And it just seemed to me like the worst kind of virtue signaling and stupidity in in the media. You would have to be either tendentious or stupid to not understand that the Declaration of Independence was aspirational. We know it, right? We know it. We know it. We knew it by the time fourscore and seven years had passed and Abraham Lincoln gave the Gettysburg Address. We knew it was aspirational before George Floyd was murdered. We knew it was aspirational the whole time. And my frustration, and I don't want to sound like I have a, you know, be in my bonnet about this, but I watched an Independence Day celebration this year. I watched the country celebrate Independence Day in a really embarrassed way. There is a new anxiety about the American project. And I have to say, either it's been worth it or it hasn't been worth it. And I am very much on the side of it has been worth it. There has been no greater force uh, for human improvement, for the liberation of people, for human potential than the United States of America. It was founded imperfectly. It is imperfect today, and it continues to be. But the question that you have to ask is, was it good for them to do and was it not? And increasingly, I and maybe it's not increasingly, maybe this is just perception on my part, but I hear more people who are like, well, and somebody even said, be better if we stayed with the British and, and repeating the calumny from the, the debunked 1619 project that the United States declared independence because they wanted to protect slavery, all of that stuff. And it is it bums me out to see the greatest endeavor in in governance in human history treated like a, some embarrassing mistake. That is merely a reflection of your privilege status. <laughs> Fair. As fair. a white man. Fair, fair, uh, fair. My, my, rev- my revolutionary era ancestors, yeah. <laughs> shame, they, they, they shame me from the grave. This is true. My final item here, and then Chris has, uh, well, one that I'm not a huge fan of and another that I am a fan of, but my final item uh, is 
Vice News had this expose on, quote, the reporters who survived the Capitol riot. Let me yeah, make sure. Uh, let me make sure I'm getting this right. Reporters who survived the Capitol riot are still struggling. And these reporters recount the trauma that they suffered. I don't want to minimize the uh, the Capitol riot, which was terrible, or, or the trauma suffered. I'm sure it was traumatic. But, but uh all of the reporters who covered the riot survived. Yes. So, you know, okay. You can't say for all the police and for all the rioters. Beyond that, this is like committing the cardinal journalistic sin that we increasingly see of making yourself the story. So when I, I, when I, when I saw this article and I, I again, in no, in no means minimize the, the siege of the Capitol and in no way discount the fact that the, these reporters did experience trauma. But it did make me think of my old friend Mike Hedges, uh, with whom I worked at the Washington Examiner, who covered every American conflict, I believe, from Panama through Iraq and domestics. He covered Katrina and all kinds of stuff, eating camel bolognese, uh, getting dysentery in in Somalia, just all Failed of in comparison, though. To the well, but but the, but the thing is, Ryan. he he wears it as a badge of pride, right? This is like, this is the stuff that I survived. This is the, I, I got to see this stuff happen. I got to see history happen and I survived. And he would tell you that the camel bolognese wasn't that bad. So I guess I. Camel bolognese? Camel bolognese. Like the animal with the hump? Yeah, the, the hump, one hump or two. Wow. I guess it's like, you should be proud that you were there to cover a huge history-making story, and these are the stories that you're going to dine out on and have drinks with with your friends for the rest of your daggone career. So, you know, get hip to the camel bolognese, folks. Now do your stupid gallop item. It's not a stupid gallop <laughs> item, and I'm triggered. I'm triggered Over to by you. I'm, transition. I'm, I'm, I'm triggered. So Gallup's, Gallup does a, has for decades done a survey asking American adults, how do you feel your life is going? Do you feel like I'm struggling? Do you feel like I'm getting by? I forget what all the categories are, but the top tier is thriving. You feel like you're thriving. And in the most recent Gallup poll, 59.2% of respondents said that they were thriving, the highest percentage recorded in the survey. And this goes back, again, a long time. When you look at the right track, wrong track numbers, which have been have been bad for a long time, bad really since the panic of 2008, you're starting to see right track numbers for the country approaching 50%, a couple here and there getting over 50%. We have not seen this for a long time. Now, I'm not saying there aren't problems in the country, but I am saying that there is a massive disconnect between what Americans are experiencing and what the news is covering. And the calamitization, the, the catastrophization of all things and that we live in this hellscape and that everything is a disaster. And I know that, look, I, I'm always here to defend the fact that we don't report on the planes that land. I got it. Right? <laughs> I totally get it. And there, there is a defense to if it like rains, the hurricanes that narrowly right. uh, it, there, that a, grazed the coast. There, there is a legitimate defense to if it bleeds, it leads because we need to know about bleeding. So th there I'm, I'm here to say all that. But the but the, the chasm between what Americans seem to be experiencing in their own lives and the news coverage is as, as wide as I have ever seen it. You're up next too. well, this, this is this side of my like a lot, this, this uh, which delight. which I think. Relates to your Gallup item, which uh, Americans are very excited sending their kids back off to summer camp, but leave it to the New York Times to find the, I don't know, it's not a silver lining. It's like the opposite of a silver lining. Right. The, uh, 
How will your turd col- turd colored lining of this cloud wonderful? That's the name of your yeah. spinoff podcast from this. Uh, the point of the article is how will climate change affect your elite child's elite summer camp experience, and what can you do as an elite? to make sure that they make the most of a post-climate change world. So it's like news you can use for one percenters from the Upper West Side who are sending their children off to— To Michigan. The camp was in Michigan. This camp is in Michigan, but I'm sure most of them are sending them to get— They're like in the Berkshires and the Catskills. Are they allowed to use DEET? The good, because that's it, that's the, the only the thing I buy is like, what is the maximum deed percentage? If your uh, bug spray does not make your lips tingle after you use it a little bit, you're using the wrong bug spray. So, but just I just had to laugh at the story because it was the most New York Times story possibly ever. How will climate change affect your child's summer camp experience? It really was. Uh- it cracked me up because I was thinking like, you know, I'm friends with all these parents who are excited their kids are going to camp. And how many of them do you think are like worried about uh, what percentage of like actual parents experience this? For for whom is this news they can use? Well, it, you know? it, it is news. Not news many for parents. People who are adherents to the new secular religion of constant concern. If you are a congregant of the church of constant concern, Am I doing enough about racial justice? How am I? And so imagine if you're a a wealthy elite who is feeling, who is excited to send your child uh, back to summer camp. But then are you concerned enough? How is your child's camp (laughs) addressing systemic racism? How is your child's camp dealing with questions of climate change? And it's like you people should go have a beer and Enjoy it. Whatever you do, whatever your child's summer camp does is not really going to shape the future of the global climate crisis. So chill out. It's my job to scoot us along, and that's what I'm going to do. Scoot us along to our obsessions of the week, uh, where we break down the stories we can't get out of our heads. Over to you, Chris. So I don't want to pick on Max Boot. Uh, the columnist at the Washington Post uniquely, because there's a lot of this around there, but it was reading Max Boot wrote a column basically saying Republicans are going to kill us with their vaccine denialism and that it's the red states that are the problem. And there, I saw a segment on CNN. I've seen, I've seen stuff around where the, the correlation between red states, low vaccine and and Republicanism and Donald Trump or Fox viewership is treated as as causality. So boot lists the states that he says it's no surprise the states with the lowest vaccination rates are Mississippi, Alabama, Arkansas, Louisiana. And he says, well, and obviously these are Trump states. You know, this is these these are the Trump states. And I'm reading it and I'm yelling at the iPad and I'm like, hey. Mississippi is 49th in income and 49th in education. Alabama is 45th in income for, and here I'm using for education, college attainment, uh, whether you, the percentage of your population that got a college degree. Alabama's 45th in income, 43rd in education. Arkansas is 48th in income, 48th in education. Louisiana is 46th in income, 47th in education. You know who's not getting vaccinated? Poor people with low educational attainment rates. That's who. It is maybe the same reason that they are particularly 
influenced by demagogic uh, political leaders like Donald Trump. And it's maybe the maybe there's some correlation here between uh, let me put it this way. When somebody like Ron Johnson, who's a sitting United States senator, is discouraging people from getting vaccinated by asking dumb questions in leading ways, I'm sure it has some effect. I don't know how many Wisconsinites were going to get vaccinated and then heard Ron Johnson and said, well, I guess uh, maybe I won't now. I doubt that number is <laughs> true. I think it, I think that when you have people on television and you have politicians who are trashing vaccines, they're doing it because they want supporters not to change people's minds. It's, it's a lagging, not leading indicator. And where is the, the same reason that poor whites in those states are not getting vaccinated is the same reason that poor people of color in urban areas are not getting vaccinated. We have two large groups in America who are the most reluctant to get vaccinated. And what do they have in common? They're poor and they have low educational attainment levels. This should not surprise us. And for Boot and others to turn this into a more political issue than it already is, is not only not helpful, it's uncharitable to the poor and poorly educated people who are can't understand how stuff works and aren't doing it. I'm sure there are cultural folkways in a lot of these states, and I can say this as a West Virginian, leave me alone and I don't want your, you know, get, get, get off me, right? The, the independent streak of the what Michael Brown calls the Jacksonian belt is a real deal. And I'm not saying it's not, but this is wrong and uncharitable and it makes things worse, not better. Amen. Harumph. Wow, that was a great obsession where I had to contribute nothing. Well, do I mean, do you? No, I'm ready to move to mine. Okay, good. Uh, so my obsession of the week <laughs> is an amazing CNN segment tag team between CNN's Brianna Keelar and CNN correspondent Ellie Reeve, who gave us a really even-handed download on critical race theory. Play the clip. So, Ellie, do these vocal opponents of critical race theory actually understand fully what it is? No. And why should they? It's an academic theory mostly taught at the grad student level. But what they think it means is teaching white kids that all white people are bad and racist. And so, of course, they're afraid of that. So skeptical. <laughs> I there's there's so many layers to this, like an onion. I just love the conceit that, you know, you and I, we only have BAs. We couldn't possibly understand a graduate school academic theory that's as sophisticated and complicated as critical race theory. Um, but the entire segment, it basically pits a Philadelphia teacher who says she teaches through the framework of critical race theory and Essentially, people portrayed as like stupid Fox News viewers saying that they're concerned about this. And I just wanted to play some of the hard hitting questions that Reeve asked the teacher. Are you teaching children to hate America? Are you teaching white kids to hate themselves for being white? All these opponents of critical race theory told us that, sure, racism was a problem in the past, but it's not now. And so we got into these long conversations about when exactly they thought racism had ended in America. And they didn't have a good answer. The idea that this is an accurate presentation of the two sides of this debate about what should be taught in our schools is so laughable. And the sneering condescension from the CNN correspondent is incredible. But the the coda to this is that I went on Twitter and I looked up this teacher who's profiled 
in the piece who says, of course, I'm not teaching children to hate America. Of course, I'm not teaching white kids to hate themselves for being white. Uh, This is just I just want to teach them history. Oh, before I get it to that, I love like on the one hand, these people are saying critical race theory is an obscure graduate student theory. And that's not what's being taught in schools. On the other, they're like explaining to us why the critical race theory being taught in schools is you know, an accurate framework through which to to understand things. Uh, so this teacher has a series of tweets in late June where she explains what she's teaching and what is the correct way to teach about the founding fathers and George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. So she says, as for the founding fathers, Jefferson continued the policy of land theft by buying Louisiana from the French. And he did this all while enslaving a lot of people, not to mention that it wasn't either of the colonizers land to sell. Hashtag critical race theory. Next up, George Washington defeated Britain after the U.S. committed hashtag treason because they wanted to expand land and slavery and didn't want to pay taxes. Well, I'll I'll say that when now that Nicole Hannah Jones is at Howard, uh, they can talk about the 1619 project. Uh, And then she says, are you dumb? The letter U. But you, the letter you, can just say he became president and used black slaves' teeth for dentures, which I'm not totally understanding what's happening here. I don't think but, he used uh, slaves' teeth for slaves' teeth. For, he used hippopotamus teeth. I know that that's true. So I was so struck by these tweets because, first of all, like th- she says this is what she's teaching. Uh, and the idea, they portray the idea that some parents might object to their children learning American history through this lens is... The stuff of the yokels and bigots and simple minded folk who watch Fox News is unbelievable to me. Essentially, like CNN should have just been airing propaganda for the teacher and for those pushing critical race theory. And that is like, sadly, the state of much of our our media today. Well, I think we I think this was the week that a lot of outlets realized the exposure they have that that the left has on critical race theory and on rising crime rates starting to see more crime coverage. Basically, this has been the hobby horse that Republicans uh, and a lot of right-wing outlets have been riding for much of the summer. Critical race theory and rising crime for the spring and summer have been big narrative points. And while overall crime rates are not up, uh, violent crime and murder is up pretty significantly. Uh, And as we see in the new mayor of New York, that this is a a people that, uh, uh, this is a concern that people have. And I've seen the discussion on crime change. And I've also seen the discussion on is critical race theory a thing? Because let's face it, for Democrats going into 2022, these are boat anchors that are the uh, that are the defund the police. And and you we watched this with defund the police last time. And I think critical race theory is following the same. It's the same. It's like, well, they don't rhythm. actually mean like, no, 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 no. Well, that's true. This is all that's made up. This is all we made up. We need to get Ellie Reeve on that story. And, and what does defund the police and, mean? And then at the end, they go, yeah, actually, this was probably a dumb conversation for us to have had. And we're, we're we, 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 we regret it. So I think I think this is the week. And. You know, the Biden Democrats are out there waving their arms and saying, hey, shut up. Just talk about how much money we're going to give people. Just focus on giving away free money and shut up. But it's hard because, twenty again, 24 hours is a lot of time to fill for news. Now on 
on to our favorite items of the week. This is where Chris, this is like the segment Chris has engineered to make me say something nice. Well, I will point uh, Chris, out, I just you, looked you over. You first. I love your item. I, I, I just looked over and realized that you are wearing a sweatshirt with a skull on it. So if we if we if we if we need clarity on saying something nice, that we have a, we have someone who's wearing a skull, and I'm wearing pink gingham. So I guess we're in the right. I guess I guess we're I guess you we're just in the expose right. Expose yourself as someone who's not on the forefront of fashion trends. Uh, I think it's been pretty clear that since I first I, uh, since I purchased and wore my first bow tie when I was in eighth ninth grade, uh, I think it's been pretty clear that I am I am not leaning in. But my Say Something Nice is also a plug. It's a, it's a duble. The Say Something Nice is Caitlin Flanagan, who writes for The Atlantic, wrote a magnificent piece that spoke to my beating heart about why to quit Twitter. And as we we're trying to promote this podcast, you're like, you have 90,000 Twitter followers. Why aren't you tweeting? And Caitlin's essay, Ms. Uh, Ms. Flanagan's essay, perfectly fulfills why because I can't tell us what the essay said the the essay it's she this is an essay about her confronting her actual Twitter addiction she's one of the smartest writers uh, working today she's incredibly insightful and as she says she's almost 60 years old and she finds herself struggling to deal with how to use Twitter responsibly now for a lot of people using she had a wonderful line in there about that was I, you know, you know something's good when it's memorable, like the phrasing is memorable. And she said something like uh, the Twitter is like a parasite that enters your bloodstream mm-hmm. and you can't get rid of it. You're addicted to the feedback. Uh, sorry, I cut you off, though. No, 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 no. I'm just looking for uh, it. It was a, it was a very well written piece. But I want to make sure that I point out that I would have said that even if it were not so, that she is going to be a panelist uh, for an upcoming panel that we're doing here at the American Enterprise Institute with her, with my AEI colleague, Thomas Chatterton-Williams, and with the great, great Michael Powell, reporter for the New York Times. And that is going to be on the 28th of July. Uh, and you can find out more about it at AEI.com. It's super awesome. Lord. And I'm excited that, that Caitlin's so going to be participating. Hey. Enough, enough. <laughs> enough self-promotion. All right. So I loved the Caitlin Flanagan piece. And I do wonder if, you know, in 10 years, we'll look back at this and think what old fogies we were, uh, because the biggest battle that I have with my younger colleagues at the Free Beacon is the use of Twitter. And the uh, the like idea, no offense, guys, but like that uh, people really need to know what you think about things mm-hmm. is I think it's done real damage to the news media who... Like Twitter, a friend at the New York Times said this to me. I thought it was very funny because so accurate. Like, who do you like more based on their based on reading their tweets? Right. There are not very many people. And it's like expose these unattractive, petty, vindictive, angry sides of people that like are really better left in the dark corners of and and that the, the and the biases. Uh, the, uh, my friend Dana Perino uh, jokes that she will have a great book that will be called Tweets I Never Sent. Uh, totally. And the and but one of the other points I think ju- any journalist listening to this should think about uh, that uh, that uh, Ms. Flanagan is making is why are you wasting your creative juices? Why are you wasting your energy on this hollow space? Well, they think it's like uh, the quick 
route to fame. And well, I, I try to tell them that, like, guys, the route to fame is through good work right. and not like, you know, sh- talking to people on have, Twitter. Having, having, a, maybe having that's a, an outdated a, view. Having a super dank Twitter account will probably might help you get a job, but it won't make you a better journalist. So my my I, item, final item, is somewhat Twitter related. It's about a shout out to the former New York Times style section editor, Corey Sicka who came clean in a Substack post about the real reason that he left the job and there was some controversy surrounding it. And he said, why would I want to work myself into dust trying and failing to solve someone else's problems when instead I can simply be a problem myself? (laughs) And the backstory is that he was criticized by Times like higher ups for not being uh, enough of a hands on manager, particularly with respect to the Times style writer. Taylor Lorenz, oh, that, whose again. use of Twitter, I, I mean, I guess I would just describe it as not judicious and sometimes of embarrassment to her like when she more atta- serious colleagues like, over like there. when she attacked uh, sen- a, the senior uh, national correspondent on Twitter like that. Like that. Yeah. And that is all the time we have left. That is the news about the news. If you have a story and want us to talk about it. Email us at wretches at nebulousmedia.com. That's wretches at nebulousmedia.com. This has been Inkstain Wretches from Nebulous Media. Find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Wretches. Wretches.